The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice, and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne, delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 254 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my friend Corey Perkin. We're both in our Melbourne studio today on this beautiful February morning. Corrie, it's great to see you again. Great to see you, Carol. We've turned the weather on for you, returning from Amsterdam from... Four degrees, five degrees. Yeah, look, no, the weather came good in the last few days. It got up to 13 one day. Heatwave. And full sunshine. Brendan and Ned were swimming in canals. Well, they were doing that most days. They're insane the way they dive in canals, those boys. Anyway, um, it's great to see you again. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. You'll be excited because the BAFTAs are on, and I know that's one of your favourite times of the year, movie or movie awards season. Um, I've seen a couple more movies and I know you've got a, um, a bee in your bonnet about an issue of filmmaking we're going to discuss. I've got a cracker of a new book. I'm returning some books to you that you lent me for my travels, so thank you. Might even briefly mention those. And we're going to talk in a moment about the death, quite literally, of the sex symbol. Yes, we are. I'm looking forward to that discussion. Rekha Welsh, of course, died last week at the age of 82 which prompted Caro and I to think, well, you and I really are the only sex symbols of the 70s and 80s left now, aren't we? No. Uh, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment in time, actually. It's, I can't think of, a, of another 60s, 50s or 60s star who we would have put in that category who is still with us. Uh, I can't well, really think. Well, um, Brigitte I mean, Bardot, Jane Fonda, Brigitte Jane Fonda, Bardot is still alive. She is, yeah. And Jane Fonda was a sex symbol early in her career, but then I think after Clute would have really... Um, responded vigorously against the title of sex symbol, but it's a great discussion. I just remember as a kid going around to um, parents, friends' places, and so many fathers had in their bar area or in some part of the house a poster of either Raquel Welsh in a million BC, a million years BC, in that swimsuit, if you can call it that, Brigitte Bardot from, um, was it And God Created Woman? Yes. <laughs> when Roger Vadim discovered her, who also Jane Fonda's partner as well, of course, or Ursula Andress coming out of the water. In, in Dr. The, no. In the James Bond movie. I mean, it's just extraordinary how um, people had those posters. That don't You don't sort of have those posters anymore, you do don't, you? don't. They're, they're fathers. probably illegal now. In, <laughs> maybe they're in the quiet, quietly in a corner of somebody's man shed. I hope not anybody I know. Caro, just before we start our podcast officially, we've had uh, a lot of love for you dressed as the girl with the pearl earring. Oh my, Your look, girl <laughs> with the pearl earring portrait on Instagram has gone off. Podsters, if you don't classic, know, wasn't it? if you don't know what I'm talking about, follow Don't Shoot Pod on Instagram if you are an Instagram person. And on Don't Shoot Pod last week, Cara sent us this photo. She was telling us how she she went to this extraordinary photographic studio and you dress up as somebody or someone from one of the Dutch masters. Yeah, well, past my paintings. daughter had been the milkmaid, so I figured if we, I'm sticking with Vermeer, I have to I have to do another one. I mean, I knew I didn't look great. Well, but. La Jolie Brocanteuse on Instagram said, "Oh, Caro, so pleased to see this post of you as one of my favourite portraits. You look absolutely fabulous. Thank you for sharing." Bridget Nile said, "Caro, what a great image. Straight to the pool room." <laughs> 
<laughs> Eve Carlin, 2019, said, you've just got to get this printed onto canvas and hung in the loo. Yeah, probably, thanks for the suggestion, but probably won't be doing that, even though very generous of you. We also included some photo, some holiday snaps from your trip to Spain. And Marky Mark Pyman on Instagram, love that handle. And I actually had the same thought as this, Marky Mark. What happened to Caro's right leg? Well, yes, I was, I was holding, I was holding it up. I think wasn't I? Was I doing a bit of a Marlo Thomas? That girl. It's actually, I know who, I know who Marky Mark is. It's Max Kleiman, who. Um, oh, don't out the person who, on. Don't no, out. I'm completely going to out him. He used to produce footy at Three AW and worked at Collingwood before that, and works in AFL recruiting. Yes, it is a rather strange shot, but I was happy with it. It does look like you have one leg, but. Glad to see you've got two. You've come back. And, Caro, one more wonderful bit of correspondence from our potties out there. From Angela, she has sent us a little Insta story saying that she cooked the recipe that I put up last week, Linda's chicken breast wrapped in prosciutto. Uh, she says it definitely took 30 to 40 minutes as advertised. Fast, flavourful and simple. We'll be having this again for sure. She's taken the photograph of that. How delicious is that? And then there is a photograph of her little son with a caption saying, three-year-old friendly. And the three-year-old son is hoeing down the chicken, can I tell parents of toddlers, hoeing down the chicken. So thank you very much for that. That's just so lovely to actually get some visuals as well for our correspondence. And that's some um, Angela at Coffee Canel's cookbooks. Thank that, you, Angela. Well that, done. That's right. And, and um, I just like to say thank you, Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice. And of course, Prince Wine Store are bringing you our podcast today. Now, Carol, I did want to, before we get on to uh, a BAFTA's update and Valet, the Hollywood sex symbol and all of that sort of thing, I did want to ask you about your travelling to a European winter, about coming home from a European winter, knowing you, you might have done a bit of uh, retail therapy somewhere. And packing for a European summer when you can just roll up a couple of simple frocks and T-shirts and be done with it, but going away for winter, how do you pack puffers and coats and scarves and boots? Well, as as we discussed, you know, beforehand, I was aiming to do the small carry-on and that was a disaster, so I didn't. But um, I did, no, look, I did buy a new coat on sale, half price. At, is it El Corte Inglés, that famous department store in Spain? And the fact that I had, um, you, you take over a few old, warm, puffery type things that you maybe don't want to hang on to forever and might be happy to throw out or leave behind. You definitely do that. You definitely need to take runners, obviously, and a pair of boots and another comfortable pair of walking cues. That's it. You'd, I mean, you know, one nice, decent pair of loafers or footwear, the runners and the boots, because boots are just so much warmer than anything else. You need a lot of layers. Um, well, uh, somebody told me a couple of years ago, uh, gosh, it might have even been you, I can't remember, <clears throat> somebody I know who was going over for a, a European winter said, don't, don't focus so much on taking the big woolly knit. Because usually no. what you do is you have a couple of layers underneath, as you said, a T-shirt and maybe a longer T-shirt, and then you'll have a big coat, and that will get you everywhere because wherever you go inside, it's, of course, heated. Yeah, lots of layers. Um, our dear friend Trudy lent me her heat tech, you know, one of those heat tech tops. She lent me one of those puffer vests because I don't have one of those. And were so, they helpful? Yeah, well, because basically you had four layers on under your main puffer or coat. 
And then in the, in the, in the last week, I went out often even without a coat because the weather got so warm. It was absolutely beautiful. Early, getting up is exhausting. There's so much to do. There's so much to put on before you leave the house. Clearly, it, you're not a skier. No, well, well <laughs> If yeah. you go snow skiing, you do, you do have to put aside the half hour to get your long johns on. I went skiing once. It was the most exhausting, most exhausting so-called holiday that I've ever experienced. I just cannot, I know people love it. It's just not for me. I just wasn't brought up as a skier, but, um, or give me a pair of bathers and a pair of runners and some thongs and go to the beach. Thank you very much. But um, no, it was um, it was a great trip and it's nice to be back and get back to all this incredibly beautiful weather. Saving a few plants, obviously. But in terms of tips, just, yeah, pack sensibly, a lot of dark, coordinate two outfits, take a nice dress because you can always layer that with dresses and uh, with, with jumpers and stuff like that. What can I say? It's pretty simple, really. Yeah, well, the be- two of the best things that happened to me, one, put on a raincoat that I'd thrown in at the last minute one day when I went for a walk. I was, well, I was lucky. I only had rain once. Put my hand in the pocket, pulled out not a five, not a 10, not a 20, but a $50 note. Oh. A fi- you, know when, you know how that happens? Yes. I mean, I've pulled out a $10 note, but a $50 note. Yay, happy days. Oh, extraordinary. <laughs> and the second most best piece of fortune was getting off um, the plane at Singapore to be, um, uh, to be approached by ground staff holding up a sign with our names on it. And I obviously uh-huh. immediately panicked, thought, oh, dear, what's happened? We had a five-and-a-half-hour stopover. Look, we're very sorry. Your flight's been overbooked. We've got you on a flight in just under two hours. You'll be in business class. Um, here are your tickets to the lounge, but um, you might not be able to sit together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> See you later, Brendan. We actually did end up sitting together. So it's Terribly of, sorry your flight's coming in two hours. That's inst- pretty good. Instead of having to um, hang around and wait and, you know, getting home earlier on. Look, it was just a lot of fortuitous things happened. It was very sad to say goodbye to the family. I bet. But I think we've probably all seen enough of each other now. We're all happy to have, probably have a bit of a break. <laughs> No, well, it was fabulous. Well, you had a, you did have a terrific trip, and um, thank you for keeping the home fires burning, hosting the podcast while well, I was up in the attic. Well, that's always a pleasure when you're having a nice holiday for me to be back here as a worker bee. Jane and I just toiling away here in the studio, and I have to say that um, Miss Jane is not with us at the moment, but the lovely Adam is. Adam, thank you for joining us today. It's very nice to see you having a bloke in the studio. Always fun. Um, and you're doing a ripper job there with the panel and everything. Caro, as we are recording this, the BAFTA results are just coming in. These are the, like the British version of the Oscars. And what you and I think they're actually a better ceremony, don't you? You and I think it's more fun, more interesting. This year hosted by Richard E. Grant, in the past hosted hysterically uh, slash controversially by Ricky Gervais, yep. where he's often managed to to offend pretty much 90% of the audience. But Richard E. Grant, I gather, just looking at the early rundown, early reviews of this, has done a terrific job. The Banshees of Inner Shirin, which I have not seen, um, has picked up a few, like, best supporting actor and so on. The best film, a spoiler alert, of course, if anybody wants to catch this on television, um, don't listen to what I'm about to say, but the best film is All Quiet on the Western Front, which I have not seen yet. But I gather, someone told me on the weekend it's, on Netflix, or you can actually, or Stan, you can actually yeah, I'm stream sure, it. Oh, that's an interesting result. It's um because there've been some great British films that started on the big screen 
this yeah. year that I'm surprised might not have got a look in. But that's the remake, obviously, of the Louise, very, very old um, Hollywood film. I'll be really interested to see that one. I will too. I think, um, I mean, the, the, the first one was really terrific. And, of course, Edward Berger, the director of All Quiet on the Rest, Western Front, uh, was nominated and, in fact, has been successful there as well. Catherine Martin, the Aussie, I shouldn't. That's just so parochial and pathetic, isn't it? But I do, I am proud of Catherine and Baz Luhrmann. I I acknowledge them as ours. She won Best Costume Designer for Elvis, which if you remember my review from last year, that is well-deserved. The costuming was incredible in that. Best Cinematography, again, All Quiet on the Rest and Front, was won by James Friend. Best Supporting Actor, as I said, The Banshees of Inna Shirin, Barry Kean, uh won that, um, beating a pretty strong cast there, actually. It looks grim, that film. We've had a few of our friends tell us that they uh, some people loved it. Rose went and saw it um, while I was over in Amsterdam. She really enjoyed it. Others not so keen. Never really understood about why the two people fell out in the first place. No, I, I gather the same. And Kerry Condon, had, also in the same film, won Best Supporting Actress, well, Corrie, let's get let's turn the clock back though. Let's turn the clock back to Raquel Welsh now. Yes. Did you know that Raquel's cousin ended up being the first female president of Bolivia? Her father was came from Bolivia, and did you know when she made Myra Breckenridge, which was probably one of her more famous films, um, and Mae West was also in that, which is based on the Gore Vidal novel about the man who goes overseas and comes back as a woman, got, turns from Myron to Myra. And that was Raquel, that one of the um, supporting actors in an early role was Farrah Fawcett. And she said Raquel was so mean to her that she made her cry. And Mae West refused to act with Farrah Fawcett because she said, I, don't, I, I won't appear on screen with any other blondes. So they sent Farrah away to get her hair dyed darker. And then Raquel jacked up about the darker hair. Sorry, just a couple of a couple of tidbits I remember. Well, of course, Mae West was one of the first blonde bombshells. She was, and she never actually said, "Come up and see me sometime." But no, she, she did didn't. say something similar. Look, I just think the the notion that it it went from um, the movie star sex symbol, like you know the Lana Turner, the Sweater Girl, and Rita Hayworth, and and obviously Mae West and Marilyn Monroe, who would probably be the ultimate enigmatic star sex symbol that I can think of who I just absolutely loved. I thought she was a great comedian as well. Uh, what a great actor she was, a great sense of timing. As you say, comedy was her forte. Abso- absolutely brilliant. But um, that that sort of notion of being the sex symbol now, I mean, I think there are a lot of models who still go into acting, but they just look completely different. Oh, the genre's completely changed. And and this and there were all always great women actors, you know, there was always Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis and you know, the list goes on. The idea of pinning somebody up on your wall, which you said earlier, in the eighties, Carol, in the early eighties, how many photographer at the ages lockers inside their locker door was a photo, a poster of Bo Derek? Yep, yep, out of ten. Oh my god. I watched this great movie on the plane actually coming home. It was a documentary made um, about the basically about the lives of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And it was, it's a Netflix. Doc, it was on HBO, and it is fascinating because it, it's about how these two actors fell in love when they were either off or on Broadway. Went to the actors' school, you know, the actors' studio, the famous um, acting teaching school where Marilyn Monroe also went. Lee, uh, not I was going to say Kruntzman. Um 
It'll come Strasbourg. to me. Strasbourg. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, and Eli Wallach, mm. but and how she was the great actor. He was he was married with three kids. They had the affair. They eventually married themselves. Had three more kids, and how his stardom overtook her stardom at some point in the marriage, and the power shift sort of completely changed. Well, he became a sex symbol. Yep, exactly. This is what people forget. There were actually male actors who were known in the industry uh, as as sex symbols. and But the definition of sex symbol, I think, for the men was a little bit different for the women. The, men, the women, when you think of, like we said, Mae West and going back to Jean Harlow and Lana Turner and Rita Hayworth, who was such a bombshell, Sophia Loren, um, Elizabeth Taylor in her early days, they they sort of oozed sexuality, didn't they? Whereas the blokes, it was a bit different. It was less about the body shape, more about their on-screen charisma. And usually, usually there was part of an action-packed movie component to that. Now, for example, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I think really put Robert Redford on the map as a sex symbol. Yep. Uh, you could argue not really an action-packed movie. It was a Western but gosh, there was a lot of uh, leaping and jumping into waterfalls and riding horses, rough and tough, which Redford, Redford did himself. There was no stuntman. And I think just that look of the cowboy in the hat with that um, that moustache really kind of set a fashion trend for blokes in the 1970s. Well, but there was, there was a, a lot of talk about that film in this doco, which is actually made by Ethan Hawke. And what he's done is they did a long series of interviews, a lot of people surrounding Paul Newman in his life, including his kids and Joanne Woodward and his first wife, who, of course, was mother to the, the child. That they had. There were, Paul Newman had five girls and one boy, but his son uh, died of a drug overdose. And they talked about the downward spiral and the problems that family suffered, the first family. It, it was really interesting. Paul Newman destroyed all the tapes, decided he didn't want this book to go ahead. But um, Ethan Hawke found that someone had transcribed all the tapes. So he got um, all these actors and friends of his during COVID to read. To read, and that's all in the documentary. So, With the permission of the first and second wife. Well, well, they're, well they're all dead they're all- now. Um, jo- Joanna Woodward's not. Yeah, no, she died. She suffered from Alzheimer's and died not long ago. Oh, I didn't realise that. And um, and it's in. So George Clooney agree, agreed to be Paul Newman. Um, Laura Linney was Joanne Woodward. All these fabulous actors and actresses do the voices of all these people involved. Wow. It's called the Last Movie Stars. And Last I Movie Stars. I highly recommend there it. There you go. It was interesting, Caro, to have to be thinking about this topic because then I thought, well, what, at what point did it change? And I was a, a young girl when Clute with Jane Fonda hit our hit our screens probably maybe about 1974 perhaps 75 and I started thinking about how how there was a real shift in the feminist movie hero so the sexy bombshell goes to feminist movie hero Diane Keaton of course in Annie Hall she was the star of that movie Faye Dunaway remember she played Diana in Network she was the um, television VP yep. as Peter Finch was um, was on a spiral downwards uh, Meryl Streep Kramer versus Kramer really I think a, a woman who decides to leave her husband played by Dustin Hoffman her husband and child because she's not happy in a marriage that was a pretty brave step she um, changed it all for everyone, didn't she, Meryl She really Street. did. Every, pretty much most movies. Barbara Streisand, though, you see. So Barbara Streisand never considered, uh, you know, in, in the days of Audrey Hepburn, she was never considered a beauty. But she had such ambition. She had the amazing voice. But she was always de- destined, I think, to become a director because she 
apparently when you, when you worked on set with her and Funny Girls and things, she could see the shot before the director saw. So she she had this amazing career ahead of her. Mary Tyler Moore, you and I discussed her a lot, how she kind of changed our world. And then Sigourney Weaver. Do you remember the Alien series? Yeah, oh, mm. obviously. And she was Ripley. Oh, she was incredible. So there were just all these really strong women and then, and then you know, Jodie Foster coming through and and Camille Puglia wrote in 2019, she wrote, she wrote a really terrific essay in one of the American magazines on this, and she said, the sex symbol was arguably Hollywood's most brilliant artifact, propelling the young movie industry to world impact from the moment that Theda Barra flashed her coiled, snaked brassiere in Cleopatra. Sex was great box office. But isn't it interesting in hashtag me too era, it's not such a big thing. Well, no, except, well, we say that. Does sex sell? I think you still have to be pretty gorgeous looking to be, well, no, that, no, that, no, that's not entirely true either. There's some very successful actors and female and male now where they've got huge appeal, but they're not necessarily that body shape in the old, in the old fashion notion of the word. I think there's all also a, um. A sense of sadness about a lot of the great sex symbols. I mean, a lot of them had really tough private lives, a lot of marriages, uh, troubled relationships with their children, um, really hard to... What was it? Rita Hayworth who said they go to bed with Rita Hayworth and they wake up with me. You know, she was talking about all her failed relationships and that that's really been a recurring theme along the line uh, all the way up until now, which is why I mentioned when we were sending each other notes the other day, all those Julie Bishop Instagram social media comments after <laughs> explain the link of that. Well, well, I only that there's still this sort of idea that a woman looking fabulous is her greatest achievement, her greatest way to say stuff you to everyone. You better explain that well, Julie, Julie Bishop. Well, Instagram. Julie Bishop put some photographs of herself up on Instagram. She's on a cruise on, I think, the QE, on the Queen Elizabeth. It's her sister's birthday, um, I think her milestone birthday. There are photos of Julie and her sister in these gorgeous gowns on the boat. Julie filming herself jogging however many kilometres around the boat every day to stay fit. And all these other so-called influencers, I hasten to add that Julie Bishop, I, I put her head in the, not in the category of influencers. She obviously was far more important, has been, and is far more important than that. But you go, girl, we're so proud of you. It's fantastic. It's like, oh, I mean, she's obviously just recently come out of a relationship breakup. I find that really strange. Again, the idea of the revenge body. Like, you know, remember when Nadia Bartel turned up at the Brownlow in the revenge body dress? It was like, oh, for heaven's sake, that is surely not what we're up to now. Do you know, if I had Julie Bishop's figure, she's 66, isn't she? I'd probably be Instagramming myself and saying, you go, girl. That's not not really my point. No, nothing wrong with Julie Bishop doing that. It's more just this sort of the, um, the sisterhood sort of applauding her for looking fabulous. I mean, I I, I don't know. I've, I I just find it a little bit strange. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying too is that we there. Julie Bishop has so many, so many more achievements behind her. Uh, yeah, and not good to mention on her. being foreign minister of Australia for a few years and very successfully. And and you know, good on her. She's come out and spoken out quite vocally about the boys' club in Canberra, and it was great to hear it from someone like her who actually climbed so high on the ladder. But you know, maybe could have climbed even higher had she not put up with some of the stuff she had to put up with. Carol, I just wanted to mention the role of TV before we get off the topic of sex symbols because I think 
if you and I go back to our 1970s, early 80s selves, glued to the television set as you and I were, we think about those women who were role models. It wasn't about their body. It was about, it started to shift. It was about their brains. It was about their smarts. And you and I have talked about the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yep. If there are any young women out there who wonder what we're talking about, you need to see a couple of episodes in the context of uh, the the women's movement of the early 70s. And do you remember Rhoda? Yeah, who was a sp- who yeah, was on the spin-off. show and then had a spin-off series, yeah. as did Cloris Leachman and Phyllis. And Charlie's Angels, although they were pretty all pretty gorgeous too. Oh, but remember yeah, well, Charlie's <laughs> Angels. Corrie, I don't think I wouldn't be pretty. Oh, no, they were the- smart. <laughs> Oh, right, maybe they did, maybe they just, maybe it was patriarchal. They just did what come Charlie on. said. Oh, what no. about Policewoman with Angie Dickinson? Yeah. <laughs> you remember playing Pepper? Yes, <clears throat> that I was do. one of my favourite shows. Yes, a, a, a former wife of Bert Bacharach, who we discussed That's from right. another Vale right. last week. A lot of um, is it just because are we at the age? You know, when I remember in the sixties and seventies, a lot of famous movie stars were dying. Now it's people who were just that rung ahead of us. Did you know that Hans Paulson died last week? I didn't know Remember that. Hans Paulson who wrote Rose Coloured yes, Glasses yes. for John Farnham? <laughs> he was a great songwriter. No, we're getting to a stage where our contemporaries will be just naturally dying of natural causes. Popping off. Yes, I know. It's a sign of age. But, um, yeah, look, I did love Policewoman. It, I suppose it was a forerunner to Vera, really. Speaking yes. of sexy. <laughs> Do you know what I... Yes, Pat. This is how. I've, oh, Kenny! Clearly, I was having trouble sleeping on Saturday night. I watched Twenty Five Years of Midsummer Murders, and they they interviewed both Barnabys. It was hysterical. They did some of their most famous. There's oh, a, there's ladies a, and gentlemen, this is the same woman who's going to Bridge Congress later this week. Like, like there's a like there's a Vera <laughs> tour to around to Newcastle. There is there are Midsummer Murder tours, and they go over all the famous people who made their debuts, like Olivia Coleman. Was an early murderer. Well, Sarah Winman, who wrote Still Life, was my she, best friend. Did she appear on Midsummer no, Murder? She was an. She started life as an actor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But did she appear on Midsummer yeah, Murder? She was on Midsummer. Orlando Bloom, who uh, the first Mrs. Barnaby took complete credit in the doco of saying, "I got him the role. I was a date. I knew he was going to be a star. I brought him in." I always found Mrs. <laughs> Barnaby quite bossy, no matter who played. Um, oh gosh. Anyway, he, oh, we digress. <laughs> Walked down memory lane. My, my brain's a little bit fried at the moment. We are digressing, but I think it was a time to go and pop into the cocktail cabinet. Caro, we are recording this at a time when Miles is stuck in the warehouse at Prince Wine Store. So I'm going to hand over to Jane and Miles to chat about this. It is producer Jane jumping into the cocktail cabinet. We do record rather early in the morning uh, with Caro and Corrie. I didn't want to wake Miles Thompson up because he actually had a little staff function. So, um, Miles Thompson, welcome from Prince Wine Store. What's on the menu drinks-wise when you have a Prince Wine Store staff get-together? I'm assuming the top shelf? Well, well, the bosses have got to pay, so it's maybe not top, top shelf. <laughs> no, we always we always like to open a few things. A lot of magnums, actually. I think the large formats are perfect for, you know, those big bottles of stuff. We had a Jeroboam of champagne, so three litres, from Andre Clouet. We Ooh. had some great Chablis in Magnum 2017 from Agnes Didier, Dervisat. One of the bosses bought in a few little special things out of this Stella some old. Uh, Reason from JJ Prum 2015 and some other bits and pieces. It was really cool. 
Now, you spoke about Chablis recently on the podcast and mm. a lot of people have been mentioning it to me. Has it been uh, selling really well since we mentioned that Chablis is the go-to fancy drink of the moment? Our sort of tagline is we can't keep enough on the shelf. It's unbelievable how popular it is these days. So we're, all, we're, we're shocked. All through winter too, it was super popular. So we love it and I'm glad everyone else loves it too. Fantastic. We are going to talk summer mixed dozen. Look, I've noticed the very first autumn leaves have turned red on my ornamental grapevine, which means autumn is just around the corner. So stock up on the summer specials before the next season comes in. Tell us about the summer mixed dozen. Well, look, we always do a couple of sort of seasonal mixed dozen summer, uh, usually something in autumn and sort of winter. Um, And it it is what it is, just a bunch of wines that sort of suit, suit the weather, suit the season. So, you know, not as many reds, but we always pick a couple of like juicy reds and I've got a couple because I know there's a lot of people are red drinkers all through summer and of course a ton of white, so lots of good options. But I picked a few out for, for us to sort of chat about quickly. So on the red end of the uh, spectrum, what mm. would you be recommending from the summer mixed dozen? Well, I got I got two things. I got uh, a wine from France called Cave de Puy Coteau de Genois Rouge, a bit of a mouthful. Um, and it's a kind of newer appellation and it's a mix of a Cabernet Franc and Gamay made in a very like crunchy, tight, lovely sort of small berry, red fruit, spice, no oak, just really delicious, perfect sort of summer, summer fair red. Um, got a little bit of bite to it. So it's a great food wine for something to have, you know, some, some charcuterie or something with it would be perfect. Really nice. And what else would you recommend from the mixed dozen? Yeah, so I've got uh, another red, if you want another red, Spinifex Papillon. So Spinifex out of the Barossa. This is their mainly Grenache blend with a little bit of Thinso, which is a, a varietal you don't see around so much, very spicy sort of style. Grenache, perfect for summer, very juicy, fleshy red fruit. Um, that lovely, you know, sweet Grenache fruit. You could probably chill this a little bit if you wanted. Um, but it's just such a, and this one's made in a very forward, easy, snappy sort of crunchy style. So perfect, perfect for summer. Absolutely. I always feel like I'm being really uncouth when I chill a red wine, but you just said you could chill this if you wanted. So perhaps I'm not completely off the trend. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, and look, you know, I've probably said it before. One of those things for, uh, when we're talking about, you know, the temperature of wine in Australia and they talk about serving wine at room temperature, they're sort of talking about European room temperature, which sure. is obviously, you know, 16 degrees or something like that. So if you have a wine off the shelf, a red wine off the shelf, like, you know, 10, 15 minutes in the fridge when it's hot, just to kind of bring it down a bit is, is I think, no problem at all. And a little bit more if you want. That's up to you, however you want to drink your wine. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so that's the reds. What else have you got for us? Right, so I just picked one white. It's the Columba. Grillo, which is, Grillo is from down in Sicily. It's one of the main white grapes that you see there. And it's got this lovely combination of, of tropical fruit and really sort of this belt crunchy sort of minerality. It does it really, really well. So it has that lovely warm sort of fruit that you'd think from the Mediterranean, but then it has this kind of lovely sort of mineral saltiness that you think from the sea. A lovely kind of combo of of fresh and zippy and lovely sweet sort of tropical fruits and tree fruit. And it's just, it, we've had this wine before, but this is the newest feature to that. And it's a cracker. So we love that we've got it floor stacked in the front of the store and went in the pack. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of this one. All right. And one more for us in the white. 
zone? One more, absolutely. Whitman 100 Hugel, which is... Uh, Whitman is a, a very well-known um, German Riesling producer. Um, they make mainly a statewide, but the Whitman 100 Hugel is the 100 Hills is what it translates to. This is all their bought fruit. So growers that they've worked with for sort of generations, they buy in the fruit and they make this wine. So it's a very lovely introduction to, to German Riesling. A little bit off-dry, that super crunchy, um, fresh cut sort of apple tree fruit, that little hint of minerality, that flatiness that you get in a really vibrant, uh, sort of energized white wine. Or, I mean, I'm a huge Riesling fan, but this is if you've never had German Riesling, this is a great introduction to these uh, sort of dry style German Rieslings that you see. Absolutely fantastic. I love a good Riesling and I have German mm. heritage, so it's really calling my name. I'm going to have to come in and get a bottle of that. Uh, Miles, you I'm can sorry. deliver now Australia-wide, can't you? So for all of our potties listening Absolutely. who can't get into Bank Street in South Melbourne, princewinestore.com.au, use the promo code MESS for your listener discount and you can basically ship that to anyone in the country. Anyone in the country is not a problem. We ship up to Queensland, to Perth, uh, Northern Territory, Tasmania, everywhere. And how much was the mixed dozen that we spoke about, the summer mixed dozen? So I think the mixed dozen is $265. Unfortunately, no discount on that one because it's already discounted, but you get free delivery. So um, we always do free delivery on the mixed dozen. So if you buy one of those anywhere you are, we'll send it for you for free. Fantastic. Jump online, princewinestore.com.au. And that was the cocktail cabinet. Thank you very much, Prince Wine Store. Thank you, Miles Thompson. And remember, for your 10% listener discount, you go to www.princewinestore.com.au online or in store at Bank Street, South Melbourne, and they can deliver Australia-wide too for all of our interstate podcast listeners. Corrie, it's time for BSF. Caro, you're going to give us a book, <coughs> excuse me, which has been beside my bedside table for two months. And I haven't got to it. I can't wait. But please don't give the ending away because I will read it. Well, it's an, it is an absolute cracker. And um, it's the new William Boyd, which you and I have been looking forward to reading for quite some time. Um, my friend Siobhan lent it to me before I went away. And I actually saved it for the plane because, you know, it's always great to have a, a book for the plane. Um, it's called The Romantic. It is in the genre of his absolute masterpiece, Any Human Heart, that I thought was really unlucky not to win the Booker Prize. I think he it lost out to Life of Pi that particular year. Um, but it's in that genre of a, basically a life lived and it's sort of clashes with famous historical moments. Unlike um, the, the main character in um, Any Human Heart, this, this character, Cashel Greville Ross, is born pretty much a century earlier. He's born in 1799. William Boyd sort of teases us in an intro to the book saying that he came across a 100-page manuscript with a few drawings and a few um, incidental add-on add-on little scripts, which he decided could not he could not make into a novel, so he decided to imagine the rest of this man's life. Cashel Greville Ross, born in, um, well, born in Ireland... Um, moved to England, tr- a well, well-travelled man during the 1800s. It's, it's, it is a real swashbuckler. 
I mean, he goes here, there and everywhere. Early on in the book, he finds himself at the Battle of Waterloo, although he, think, he thinks the battle's going to have another name, which is actually very funny about how that all sort of happens. Um, he's Anglo-Irish. Um, he's the son. Well, how he has come into the world, I won't tell you, but it's a really, really interesting backstory about how he is born. He's not who he thinks he is, and he finds out quite early on um, that his mother is not his mother, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that, that all becomes... And was that real? Well, I'd, I don't know if, 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 the, if the pieces of writing that William Boyd has hinted at, whether he's just teasing the reader or whether he's just decided to design a life where, um, I mean, this, this character comes in, he goes here, there and everywhere. He's an early settler in New England, in America. He becomes embroiled with um, the romantic poets Byron and Shelley in Italy in the early 1800s as a very young man. He falls, he has a love of his life. You know, this notion of one love for every person's life is very much a part of this novel and how that plays out. But the way William Boyd writes about the life of Cashel, Cashel Greville Ross is so fascinating and so beautifully told. And and again, as I say, um, this notion, this sort of concept of how important is one life and how memorable is that life? And in the end, it's only going to be, the, it's only the people you leave behind who are going to remember you, then they will go. But will you make your mark? This man in his own fascinating way, I mean, you're halfway through the book and he's already done service in India. He's, you know, so much has already happened to him, including this, you know, absolutely doomed love affair with this beautiful, beautiful Italian member of the Italian aristocracy. Um, and, you know, by the time he's 25, he's, he's already written a novel. He's ended up in debtor's prison by the time he's 30. Uh, there is so much that happens, Corrie, and so many funny little meetings with history, as happened in any human heart. I thoroughly recommend this book. Well, you're talking about somebody, a character who's achieved so much in a lifetime, which is the antithesis of the novel you spoke about before Christmas, which I have I finished a few weeks ago, but I have just come off my eighth book club discussion about it. And I, I think I could have another eight, which is Lessons by Ian McEwan. Oh, and there's yes. And there's Roland. Well, it's a similar who, idea. Though. So it we is follow, a similar idea. Is it? Well, so yeah. we follow Roland's life from, uh, from post-war um, England right through to current day Brexit and even lockdown. So we're following Roland through 70-odd years of his life. And essentially this is the story of a man who on paper doesn't achieve very much and in fact did a childhood trauma actually impact his life in a way that he had just developed a complete inertia about things and an inability to kind of seal the deal. And yet in this simple life of Roland's, there are so, there's so much to unpack. So, it's, it, so a life can also be a meaningful life um, if there's nothing you know, he, he hasn't achieved greatness. There's, he was a, he was going to be a classic classical pianist, and that didn't happen. A concert pianist, and he was going to do this and go, and nothing ever happened. But at the end of the book, there is a granddaughter who gives you hope, and actually, you realise that Roland all his life has been a fine man. You know, you couldn't ask for much more. Yeah, and and, so and it's interesting, and, and, isn't and it? And made terrible mistakes. Did you ever and... read Stoner by? Um, no, I never did. John Williams, I, we one, did of, the that best, book oh, one yep. of the best books I've ever read. I put it in my top 10. Um, again, a simple life, a humble life, and you follow a man's life. But 
Wow, what a fascinating story. He does. Uh, William Boyd adds does add the swashbuckling element to it, you know, with both with um, the main character in Any Human Heart and also um, the main, uh, the, Logan Mount Stewart, that's the name of the hero in Any Human Heart, with Cashel Greville Ross. There are some extraordinary things that happen to him. And it's um, a bit like in um, uh, Lessons, the Ian McEwan book, you know, periods of history affect, you know, their actions. I mean, I, th I think in the book um, Lessons, I think it, it, early on in the book there is the um, Chernobyl explosion oh. and everyone in Britain thinks that, you know, they're going to die of chemical poisoning and and so they, they behave in what looks now like in a ridiculous way for those oh. of us who's lived through COVID. And some of the things that the character in this book, in the romantic, some of the things he does in the early 1800s, you just can't believe he would act. He's often a very impulsive man and he makes some very impulsive, weirdly strange decisions that would, would never happen now that end him up on the other side of the world. But if you want to read about, you know, even travelling through Europe in the early 1800s is fascinating. Mm. You know, the travels through Italy particularly for you, who is a real Italo, Italophile. That's what I, I am. file, that. that'll do. Yeah. Um, is just beautiful. The descriptions of um, Tuscany, the descriptions of Pisa. The, oh, it's, it's just fascinating, Corrie. He loves a big European canvas, doesn't he, William yeah. Boyd? I thoroughly, thoroughly Great. I cannot wait. And it has such a beautiful cover too. Judge a book by its cover, Potties. Yes, well, that that's a major part of the story when you work out the city on right, the cover. Okay, okay. So you've been to the movies. Yeah, just quickly. My phone is going nuts, so um, it's just come in. Breaking news, Kate Blanchett has won a BAFTA award for Tar. So that's oh, obviously Best he, Actress, he where plays, she plays the conductor. Yes. Mm. Oh, that, that looks like a really interesting So there film. you go. So if we wait a little bit longer, we might get more news from the UK. Caro, I wanted to talk about two films that I actually wasted time on, not films I recommend. However, having said that, if you're at home alone, like I was on the weekend, with not much to do, and um, dare I say, half a bottle of the beautiful wine left over from Miles from the week before, which actually had longevity, it was good. Um, I watched two pretty average movies, and um, I'm just here to ask you the question, no matter how great the acting talent, no one can save a bad script. <laughs> That is true. Tell us so, the movies. The first one is hot off the press right now. It's just arrived on Netflix in the past few weeks. Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher in a film called Your oh, Place or Mine. That has been given the big thumbs down by family members of mine over in Amsterdam who Whoa. found themselves watching it late the other night. Well, there's been such a lot. Of, and we love Reese Witherspoon and we love what her production company's done. We love all that. But this is the story. It starts with Debbie and... Peter Coleman, Debbie Dunn and Peter Coleman, who are two, uh, I think they might be just out of university. I can't work out how quite old, how old they are, but they're in Los Angeles. It's 2003. And after a big night with friends, uh, they end up staying the night together and having sex. And that's the end of it. Uh, that That's it. But they actually become best friends. Or so that's what Debbie thinks. Now, just kind of think when Harry met Sally, that sort of that sort of scenario, when somebody pines after somebody, but you're never quite aligned in your pining for each other. So 20 years later, Peter lives in New York, but on this night when they had their affair in bed, they were talking about how she wanted to be a book editor and he wanted to be a writer. And over that 20 years, fate has dealt them a peculiar deal because neither of them, neither of them have become either of these things. 
So what happens 20 years later is Debbie's in a bit of a pickle. Her son from a marriage that's gone bung, um, her son needs to be looked after because Debbie has to go to New York. Peter says, I'll come over to LA and look after the kid. And you can sort of imagine where this is going. You know, the kid and Peter hit it off. They get on like a house on fire. Debbie's over there discovering a new life. She's ostensibly there to do an accounting course that she couldn't do in LA. God knows why not. But anyway, apparently she had to go to New York to do it. And she is entranced by this writing course, which is going on in the room beside her. And anyway, I'm not going to give anything away, but you can imagine what's happening here. And meanwhile, Peter, who's in LA, is discovering his sensitive self, and I'm not going to say any more. Boring, dull, um, even the scenery of LA and New York, the, at Peter's amazing apartment, couldn't get me through this movie. Yawn, yawn, yawn. Oh, well, thanks. We'll avoid that one. We well, no, I just, more well I just, you know, in the interest <laughs> of the podcast, I thought I would say this. Now, the second one is The Love Punch, which was actually made 10 years ago. Uh, which I didn't realise at the time because I thought, gosh, they haven't aged, with two stars, Emma Thompson and Piers Brosnan. Now, Caro, what's not to love with that combo? Have you seen this film? No, I haven't. And, you know, the the backup team, the other couple, so they're, they're a divorced couple, but they it's a kind of they get back together sort of thing. But their best friends, well, there's always best friends who are lamenting the fact that you broke up, Celia Imri, who we love, and Timothy Spall. Oh, yep. Timothy Spall, if people can't remember him, um, he played Peter Pettigrew in all of the Harry Potter movies, so you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. He was in Spencer too. He was brilliant in that film. He was. it. That's right. He was. He was the footman or the, yep. um, not the footman, the palace secretary or something, yep. wasn't he? Yeah. Um, anyway. A rather unlikable staffer. Yeah, he Royal was. Royal staffer. <laughs> just yet another one. So I was just, so the story of this is that Emma Thompson and Piers Brosnan have were married. Their retirement money has been stolen by a corrupt French businessman who's taken over Piers Brosnan's business and at the last minute stripped it of its assets so there's nothing left. And they decide to go on an adventure to Paris to try and get their money back from this shyster, joined by the um, keen and able um, friends down the road. So improbable. I reckon what happened was that Emma Thompson looked at this script and it said, opening scene, Paris, and she's just gone, yep, I'm there. <laughs> I'm going, going Piers, south of France. Piers Brosnan sing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking but, of Mamma but Mia. He, you know, that he, he is a good comedian. He is a very good comedian and plays a straight man very well. Still, it, like, the, they're a very attractive couple. The scenery is amazing. The house that they're trying to save, or Emma's house, not his, because he's left home, but it's like the setting, everything is beautiful and wonderful about this film. The the scripts in both these movies, Caro, is clunky. The the jokes die. I don't know what's happening that that these sort of movies get the go-ahead. They must cost millions to make when you look at the settings. Yeah, uh, there, there's a couple that um, I'm thinking of, same idea. I've, I've looked at the cast I've looked, and someone will say to me, seriously, don't do it. It's a disaster. And you can't work out why it just didn't work. And usually it's a script. It's usually the script. And and often and often poor direction. And sometimes, you know, bad acting. But as you say, you can be a good actor, but if you get bad lines, it's not great. Well it was funny. Which because is why good actors must be should be so careful and have good agents and the the best ones would never accept to do a film would like that. Would never accept. I, I can only imagine that Emma Thompson thought, Oh, you know, couple of weeks in the south of France with Piers Brosnan. I wouldn't say no to that. Well, I watched that George Clooney um Julia Roberts romp, you know, where they end up in Bali. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, the daughter's getting married, they're divorced, they hate each other. 
um, but they go to Bali to to scheme to end the marriage because they don't want their daughter to make the same mistake they did. And it sort of works. I mean, people told me, don't bother, it's hopeless, and I watched it on the plane. It sort of works on a certain level because it's nothing more than it pretends to be. So it really... Ticket to paradise. Ticket to paradise. Thank you. Miss Jane's arrived and saved the day. Um, I, I think... Even though the acting is not great, they get some really bad lines and the whole premise is completely ridiculous. There is something about the star power of those two that it it is not pretentious. It sort of just gets there. But even so, you can't believe that they didn't get a bit of script. No. Do you remember when I interviewed Hugh Grant? I went up to Sydney to interview Hugh Grant uh, in the um, uh, early 2000s. Oh, and, and that dreadful film that Liz Hurley made. <laughs> Don't, With Mickey James Blue Khan. Eyes, right? No, don't remind me of the war. So Mickey Blue Eyes, which was, again, it should have, it had James Kahn, it had um, that gorgeous um, actress with the dark hair. Um, oh, Jean, Jean, oh, come to me. And, um, and Hugh Grant. So everything on paper was looking really good. And so I'd seen an early version of, I'd seen the film a few days before the, um, before the interview in a private screening, went up to Sydney to do the interview and couldn't think of a thing to say that was good about this movie. And uh, um, Jean Triple triple Horn. Jeannie Triple Jeannie Horn. Jeannie Triple yeah. Horn. Thanks, Jane. Gosh. You know, you know a movie. Adam's, gone, Adam, Jane, Adam's back on the interchange. Jane's arrived in just in time to prompt our tired old brains. So I said, so the first thing I said was, you know, great movie, like really good. And he's looking at me blankly like it's a shit movie, but thank you and for saying And that's why it. I'm here. I've been told I have to sell it. Like if, it, so if a big kind of star comes to Australia to give interviews about a movie, you know you know, you're really worried about it. <laughs> and then I said, to start the conversation, I said, James Kahn, great role. Like he played such a great role. Uh, do you think he should get an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor? And Hugh Grant looked at me like, you really are an idiot. You know, gosh, what is the time got to go? I couldn't think of another thing to say. Needless to say, James Kahn did not win that Oscar. So, Caro, that's just a couple of movies. As I said, if you're home with a with a pizza and a glass of wine and nothing else to do, not not half bad, but not terribly good. Now, recipe. How can, now, how can you be cooking if you're in Amsterdam? Surely you were out every night on the town. No, certainly not. We did lots of cooking and lots of, um, there's some great markets there and, you know, you, you get completely taken by the, you know, the cheeses and the meats and the olives and the nuts and a lot of, you know, just deli style spreads at home. Um, at lunchtime, yes, a, a fair bit of eating out too, fair bit of brown bar work, some lovely restaurants. But I found this recipe because I bought at my favourite market there called Nordermarkt, um, which has just got old wares and stuff on Monday. And on Saturday, they have this fabulous food market, the bakery to die for. They're sort of a touristy bit and they sell beautiful oysters from the North Sea and around Ireland. But um, I bought a little jar. They they sell in these big vats jars of harissa, pesto, salsa verde, all these green tomato paste. And I brought a thing of harissa and I thought, oh, for my goodbye, our goodbye dinner, I'll make um, something with harissa and chicken because, you know, harissa and chicken just work really well. You know, harissa is that really piquant mm sort of red, you can have rose harissa or and red. it's nice to have something with a bit of yogurt with it as well. Well, mm. funny oh, you should say oh, that, Corrie. <laughs> this is harissa roasted chicken with preserved lemon yogurt. It is absolutely delicious. It also asks you to make a flatbread, which I did not do. I just bought some lovely, a sort of Dutch version of gosleme, which was absolutely delicious. 
but this is the easiest recipe ever. You basically get a beautiful large chicken and there's some, not as many good butchers over there, but once you find one, you stick with them. A large chicken, which you bring to room temperature and you actually just cover in a mixture of harissa, chicken stock, tomato puree, uh, crushed garlic, brown sugar. That's it. Pour the lot. So it's quite liquidy. You pour it over the chicken. You cover the whole pan in tin foil and you roast so it. So you mix all that up in a yeah, shaker You mix or all that stuff yeah. up, yeah, yeah, in a bowl. And then you throw it all over the chicken. So the stock, there's about 300 metres, millimetres of <laughs> mills. She's just got off a 300 plane, mils of chicken stock. You cover it in foil. You roast it at a low oven, about 160, for 50 minutes. And then you take that off. You chuck in a whole lot of cherry tomatoes, roast for another 10 minutes at 180, pull it out, 20 minutes, I should say, and then another 10 minutes, but you add olives, green olives. So it's basically this beautiful, you need a good hot oven. So once you've done the, you've cooked the chicken and got the flavours through, you take the tin foil off and it goes all beautiful and brown and crispy and you've got these olives and tomatoes at the base and that's it. And you make a beautiful preserved lemon yoghurt, which is basically just yoghurt, garlic, crushed garlic again and preserved lemon, which you whip up and you serve it with some beautiful flatbread and I just did a big green salad. Absolutely delicious. How yummy. If it wasn't for the harissa... If the harissa wasn't there, that sounds almost like a chicken cacciatore in an interesting kind of way. Yes, except it's not broken up. You oh. could you could have it cut into yeah. eight pieces, which is an easy thing to do, but it sounds works delicious. well as a whole chicken. Yeah, and I'm probably roasting like that, beautiful. I did suggest to the butcher could he cut the chicken in, and they, he, I mean, probably just looked at me as though I was. How's your Dutch? He was. It was a very and and I did a lot of you'd Google Translate, and I got quite good at that. And most people speak <laughs> English anyway, but I thought, nah, look, it says roast the whole thing, so we I'll had do a it. barbecue in Florida. Lawrence one night and um, with our friend, my friend, our friend Jane, another one of the Janes in my life, and um, the butcher couldn't speak English. And so we're going, beef steak. I said, why are you saying beef steak with an Italian accent? It's not even Italian. So in the end, she puts her two fingers up on her on the top of her head like horns and goes, <laughs> moo, moo. <laughs> really? There um, are certain... Butchers and certain meats you just don't buy in certain countries. Yeah, that's, that's probably quite right. Well, it comes out of Delicious magazine, but it comes out of, I think, I'm not sure whether it's a local Delicious magazine or whether it's an international one, but it might be UK, but Miss Jane will put it on our show notes. She Brilliant. already has it. Brilliant. Sounds great. So that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Remember, you need to call Red Energy if you want to get them on board, and you should on 131806. Corrie. You're grumpy. Are you, are you across Tiger Woods' little um, act over the last few days? Oh, look, sorry to laugh. There's nothing to laugh about with this at all. Um Yes, I am, Caro. Would you like to explain to those who may not be familiar with so, what's happened on the weekend? Tiger Woods is um, having a round of golf. Apparently, the world is divided by Tiger's insensitive act. Basically, what he did was he hit a long drive. His playing partner hit not so long a drive. That's Justin Thomas. As they were walking up the fairway, Tiger handed Justin Thomas something. It turned out to be a tampon. So Tiger was saying to Justin Thomas, well, you know, you're... You're, you're playing like a girl. You're playing like a girl because you can't hit the ball as far How as me. How often do we hear that in the footy in the outer? The reason I'm... Gr- I mean, clearly that is just... 
a pretty disgusting thing to do. It, clearly it is, I'm sorry, it's not, it's not abusive, it's not against the law, there is, but on so many levels it's just grubby and just thoughtless. And, you know, people have written about the fact that Tiger has a 15-year-old daughter and I watched The Offsiders on the ABC on the weekend and um, Georgie Robinson from the Sydney Morning Herald rugby journalist absolutely went to town uh, to him and just made comments about the insensitivities. And you know, he, he made some very good points about what it is like for women who are menstruating, women playing sport. And, and look, there's so, on so many levels, it was just a really grubby thing to do, in my view. And he's thought it out because he's holding the tampon clearly. There's, but, there's nothing funny about periods, blokes. Just, my, say, just saying, there's just nothing funny about it. But on every, and so many other levels. On so many levels. But what really um, gets on my goat, what, well, the reason I'm grumpy is this, the Wayne Carey style apology, if I offended anybody. Like, just apologise. Don't make it conditional. It was, according to Tiger, it was supposed to be all fun and games and obviously it hasn't turned out that way. If I offended anybody, it was not the case. It was just friends having fun. If I offended anybody in any way, shape or form, I'm sorry. It was not intended to be that way. Don't use the if. Clearly people are going to be offended by that or just disgusted or revolted. And clearly people are going to think it's sexist and demeaning to women. So don't do the if, Tiger. That is why I'm grumpy, Corrie. That's a very good grumpy. I just, um, yeah, it, it's become known as the Wayne Carey apology because of the time, you know, you years ago the, in the 90s he groped a woman's breast and in the city um, blind on a, after a bender after losing a final and then later said if I offended anybody. Or, Do you think it's a legal way out? It's like a legal lo- loophole saying if I, offend, if I offended anybody? Oh, I've got no Not that idea. the women of the world necessarily would be thinking of suing Tiger Woods over that, but... Anyway, it's interesting. Badly advised. Um, six Badly quick advised. questions for Red Energy, Caro. Me to you first. How can Peter Dutton win back Victorian voters? Well, he's got a problem in Victoria. The Libs have a problem in Victoria and they need to do something and do something fast. Obviously, um, they've got a new state leader and he seems to be far more impressive than Matthew Guy, certainly in early days. You know, that's, that's a watching brief. But Peter Dutton is obviously trying to soften himself. He's... He's regretted his stand on the apology that Kevin Rudd made all those years ago. He has done a lot more sort of softer style interviews. He's tried, he's sort of tried to say that he's has more different thoughts now on climate change, which I'm not quite convinced by. But I don't think Victorian voters know Peter Dutton. I think he's got to come down here and like him or hate him. People are going to have to learn to, the, the electorate has got to, the Libs have got to work out, the opposition federally have got to work out whether Peter Dutton can be a likeable leader or, or not, not, he doesn't need, no, that's true. He doesn't need to be liked. That's not true. He needs to be respected. And I think we just don't know him here in Victoria. So that's what he needs to do, Corrie. Well, I hope they're taking notes in Liberal HQ. Well, I'm just surprised that he spent so little time here. Corrie, you loathe funerals and avoid them, but whose memorial service would you have loved to have attended last week? Oh, Dame Vivian Westwoods in <laughs> London. Oh, oh, at the Southwark Cathedral. Um, all of these wonderful, not only fashion bods, but loveys of the English stage. All the great English eccentrics came out to play 
to say goodbye to the late, great fashion designer, Vivian Westwood, who, of course, died in December. And um, in I think she was 82 from memory. Um, Victoria Beckham, dressed in the most amazing black outfit. Kate Moss, Helena Bonham Carter, in her nod to Vivian Westwood, because she's always worn Vivian Westwood, was an old tartan number, I think, from the 80s with a string of pearls. Remember that look? Richard E. Grant, who was given by Vivian years ago, I think after With Nail and I, a little um, a little peak hat, and he actually wore it to Zandra Rhodes, Anna Wintour, Tracy Emin, the artist, Bob Geldof, Nick Cave Carrow, who um, sang at the funeral. Elena Bonham Carter gave the eulogy. Nick Cave sang that most beautiful, you know, his beautiful song, Into My Arms. Yep. I'm not a massive Nick Cave fan, but, oh, gee, I love that song. Um, Chrissy Hind um, took to the front of the cathedral and played a rendition of Buddy Holly's Raining in My Heart. And um, it was all just very jolly and very sad, I gather. So, uh, yes, I would have loved to have been there. Um, Caro, is AFL chairman Richard Goida in trouble? Well, I'm I'm beginning you to mean think... in his role as In chairman. his role as AFL chairman yes. and not as Qantas chairman, although, you know, quite bit of room for improvement there, I might say. Um, well, it's just interesting that now the, even the Herald Sun is starting to write about the fact that the AFL Commission is divided. And I haven't seen that before to such a degree. Divided on what? Divided over Gillan McLaughlin's replacement. Uh, Rumours now that Richard Goida has offered Gillan McLaughlin a significant sum of money to actually money to actually stay on. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. I mean, surely he said he's leaving at the end of April. That's going to happen. But it's just fascinating to see that it's the first time I've read of divisions within the AFL Commission. It's the first, I mean, obviously um, I've been railing for nearly two years since the time there've been two casual vacancies on the AFL Commission that have never been filled, that we need more football people on the Commission. But it's just really interesting to see, um, you're hearing Robin Bishop's name a lot. Um, he's a commissioner at the moment being touted potentially as the next leader. Um, but no, I, I'm just really interested that there's been a lot of a lot of talk about Richard Goyd's performance, which I think is long overdue. Mm. Long overdue. I think I think I feel some footy stories coming on. And nothing first wrong with the, the man as a person, but I just don't like his style of chairmanship, yes, and I well, don't think it's worked. Put the blowtorch under their feet. Where is the, where is the next CEO? Come on, AFL. Corey, will you be downloading the ChatGPT app? Yes, of course I will be. What on earth is it? Oh, come off it. Oh, please. What is it? Oh, God. It's a new... Really? Okay, it's it was it, it came into being at the end of last year, so perhaps you've been having a summer holiday and you haven't been listening well, to... I don't really do many apps. Well, I, I do, of our course. Our friend but... Sam, our friend Sam put me onto this over summer at a nice little drinks party and for half an hour in the kitchen we were talking about chat. GPT. So the next morning I went off and explored it. And in fact, the forthcoming Sorrento Writers Festival will have not one, but two sessions on chat GPT. What it is, is that you tell the app, like Siri, I want to write a speech for my wife's 60th birthday. And the chat GPT will, it'll do it for you. So my Sounds a bit slack. My Surely you spend time on a speech about a loved one. one. One of my family members who I'm not going to name, for that person's business, needed some captions done, writing not a strong suit. So you can probably figure it's perhaps not one of the three kids because my three are all in comms. 
Um, and just told ChatGPT, I want to explain this, I want to explain that, I want to say this and that, and all of this perfect prose came out onto the website, Bob's Your Uncle. Is it an expensive app? No, it's not expensive at all. Caro, this could end the livelihood of writers. It could take over the role of journalists or advertising copywriters or speech writers. But, and, I'm, and obviously I'm nervous about it and I'm critical at this stage, but in, like all things in life, you can't be critical until you understand what you're dealing with or you try and learn about the other side. So I'm deep diving into chat GPT. Caro, you've got to get with the program. In fact, it could write all your football reports for you. It sounds fascinating and I'm highly dubious, certainly about the, the job <laughs> that's going to destroy. Miss Jane, have you, are you downloading it? Are you using it? Um, yes, we actually did a little uh, segment on the sounding board. So basically it's artificial intelligence and it's a program that, you know, all of the data in the world gets entered into it and then it spits it back out of, at you. Um, doesn't like opinions though. So, you know, on the sounding board we put in, is Craig Hutchison a media mogul? And it's like, well, yeah, not or does Damien Barrett have an issue with she Luke Beveridge? I wonder what Chad GPT would have to say about your posy today, Jane. <laughs> Dahlia's euphorbia. This is absolutely beautiful. I have to say, this is my friend Chris who bought these. I do not have Dahlia's in my garden yet, but yeah, I love a Dahlia. They are from a little bit further mine. out in Western Victoria. So thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> Caro, another question: How has Brexit transformed European travel? Well, it's made it really tough for British people and it's made it really annoying for European people who want to go to Britain. I mean, you know how lovely it is when you're overseas and you're travelling within Europe. So you, you suddenly decide you're going to Madrid and there's, you barely need a passport. You know, actually, they did check our passports coming back into Amsterdam, which was interesting. But you don't, you're not going through international travel. You're travelling within Europe. But people forget that when they're now travelling to... Um, well, not the Republic of Ireland, but if they're flying to, to Ireland, but if they're flying to Belfast, Northern Ireland, it's completely different. You have to go through a whole different, um, you have to be interviewed and you have to show your passport. Um, if you're going to Glasgow or London, it, it, it is so much more troublesome now to leave parts of Europe and go into the UK. They've made it really difficult because... The UK really is sort of a bit of a pariah now in Europe. And for people in Britain who are travelling to Europe, they too have a completely different status. They've got a different passport queue. It's it's quite extraordinary. Well, people say, oh, the death of Elizabeth II is at the end of the British Empire. I firmly believe Brexit was because imagine how many European businesses and firms are now looking at Britain for all these cost reasons, for all for the travel, for everything, and just going no basket case. We're not going to invest there. We're and not how, going to put a head how, office there. How many British people who had children who hoped to, you know, work in France or Italy? It was just so easy before. Now it's incredibly complex and complicated. They may as well be Australian, for heaven's sake. Corrie, um, you have an amazing fact. Caro, did you know that Kmart? Um, for the six months to December last year, posted a 24.1% jump in revenue to $5.7 billion. Um, this is with, dare I say, its fellow discount retailer Target, so the two of them, um, which is pretty incredible because they didn't have such a great lockdown period, those two stores. There wasn't an awful lot of online shopping at those two, so it's good to see that they've bounced back. But this just confirms to me the rise and rise of Kmart 
as one of Australia's best performing brands. Now, you know I have been going to Kmart for quite a while. Uh, the reason I wanted to include this as a fact is I want to just to sort of say congratulations, Kmart. You do a great job. I went in there last week and I came out um, half an hour later with a basket for clothes in place of shelves in the in the wardrobe. So a basket for clothes, uh, two new bits of gym gear, something for Hattie's birthday. They're good, good on underwear too, aren't they? Yeah, and, and a couple of new coffee cups. And honestly... The change, I can't even remember, what was it, $50, $60? I can't even remember. But such good quality. Like the leggings are terrific. They're like something that you might buy at Lululemon. It really is a, a terrific resource. And I know that it's going to, everybody says it's going to be a tough year financially for households. Just remember the old Kmart. Interesting with the figures that I found here, Caro, the areas that are performing the best, kitchen and dining, has been the most popular in that six month period. So the, people are people are going there to buy their um, their bowls and like me. Their, so do their they mugs. get their celebrity designers in the way that Target no, has they done with people no, like no. Well, in America? Crate and Barrel did with Martha Stewart. Yeah, that no, sort of idea. No, they're not doing that. At like Harris Scarf with our friend Jane Lamerton. No, they just keep it really simple and really basic. But the quality of the kids' clothes, for example, I've been shopping for the for the babies there for the past couple of years, and the quality of grow suits and little jumpers and, you know, things like coats for kids in winter and you know next year they'll be growing out of it. So you don't want to spend a fortune on a good woolly coat for a child. Go to Kmart. The next, after kitchen and dining, the next popular one is footwear, which is so interesting that people are buying their, their shoes there and low price toys, which I can highly recommend. Um, and they were in this article that I was reading, um, it said that the Dynamic has now flipped, whereas during lockdown we were all buying discretionary goods such as leisure suits and um, elect electronics for the home and those sorts of things that made us feel good. Now we're completely going to okay. We now need a new. Um, we need new crockery. Uh, we need to to um, upgrade. Um, like oh, the other thing I bought was a toilet brush. So you know people are going in there and buying those sorts of things. Um, did you know Jane Lamerton's bestseller a couple of years ago, the Jane Lamerton brand at Harris Scarf, was not because she also does homewares for Harris Scarf. Was not her beautiful black dress or her wonderful, wonderful, oh, those wonderful coats and things, jackets that she does. It was the Jane Lamerton toilet brush. <laughs> no. I didn't know was that. Was the best-selling I did home, not know that, Was Corrie. the best-selling homeware. Anyway, I just thought I'd just give a nod to Kmart. You're doing a great job. Stick to your knitting. Don't don't, um, don't be, um, you know, waylaid by sort of gizmos and trying new things. And also in this article, Caro, what do you think is Australia's most favourite shop? Most favourite tar target, I'd say. Bunnings. Oh, but of course. Yeah, of course. And yes. we're all three of us have gone, yeah, love Bunnings. Well, and we're women. Well, I'm, that, I, I love say that. It like I love that, their plant you know, section. Traditionally, I, it's a bit of a. I love their story. plant section and their outdoor furniture section. The rest, oh. you can. I just, just. Oh, I could walk around the storage units for hours and yeah. hours. It, it, it's a, it can be a, a wall of extra jobs for me. I'm just not. It's not my favourite place, but I certainly think they do a good job. Corrie, that was a podcast for another week. I'm happy to hear that the retail world is up and thriving again. From Bunnings to BAFTAs. We'll be back with lots of news from our travels over the next week. And, Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.